Hello, and thank you very much for joining me on episode 189 of the Game Pit Podcast. My name's Ronan. I will be your host this Picking Over the Bones episode, which means I'm going to be taking you through seven of the games that I've played recently, sharing my thoughts and feelings on them, giving them a very arbitrary rating out of 100, and perhaps you'll pick up some to play, some to avoid, and hopefully some to disagree with me about. The first game for today's episode is going to be Terracotta Army. One to four players, two hours long, 2022 game, as most of the games this week are, from Primislav Fornell, who designed Blossoms, Adam Kopinski, who designed Nemesis, Lords of Hellas, and published by Board and Dice, famous for those tea games, Teotihuacan, Tekenu, Tresmagistus, and many more. The players are going to be competing during a game of Terracotta Army to score the most victory points, and you're going to do that by building four different types of warriors within a grid, and they're going to be supplemented by specialist statues you can add in order to aid you to score points in the various ways in which they are available. The game is played over five rounds, and depending upon player count, players are going to place between three and five workers on each round, and they're going to go on an action wheel. When you choose a place in the action wheel, you have one of the 12 sectors, and then in order, you will take the inner, the middle, and the outer, which is completely fixed, actions which you have chosen for the sector. Before you choose what sector you want to go into, you can move either of the wheels for two money. They can only go one move for one of them. That's all you can do on your turn. And they have a fixed position in which they go. And so one goes clockwise and the other one goes anti-clockwise. Now, in terms of what you're doing when you place these workers, well, one of the things you can do is you can upgrade that work. Everyone gets these uh, set of, let's say, in a full-play game, you get three small workers and when a small worker has chosen a sector, no one else can go in it for the rest of the round until they reset. You can, however, there's one action in which you just upgrade that small worker to a bigger worker. You don't get an extra worker. It completely replaces it. And then that bigger worker completely blocks that sector. However, in subsequent rounds, larger workers can go where smaller workers are. Now, if you've done the math yourself with four players, with three workers each, with 12 sectors available... Obviously, at the beginning, is going to be one worker per sector. Having that flexibility later on in order to be able to jump in where someone else has already gone, as well as that flexibility being able to move one of the two innermost wheels, will allow you to start making some more choices rather than being fixed and bound in to just what is obviously available to you. Now, other stuff you can do is take one of the two resources in the game. You might be able to take some money, or you might be able to take some clay. And usually from this, you'll be able to take wet clay. Now, wet clay is good because you're going to be using that to build the actual statues going to the grid once we actually get onto that. There is, however, the ability to get dry clay during the course of the game. At the end of every round, all of your wet clay mostly is going to dry out unless you protect it with masters. And then you're going to have to wet it next round along in order to make it malleable and usable to make statues again. So it makes it a two-stage process in getting clay. But sometimes dry clay is easier to get. So you can wet all of your clay and turn it into wet clay and from there you can use it. There are also actions that lay to ready weapons. There are four different types of weapons in the game, and they come into effect in two different ways. Now, with all this wet clay, you're going to be able to take actions to build warriors. There are four different types of warriors, and you take one from a really cool like box thing, which has them all standing up, 
and the first ones that are taken are worth more points than the ones that are down. So the more swordsmen have been taken, for example, the fewer points you get for building a swordsman. And then you can choose anywhere within this grid, the scoring grid, to place your statue. Now, there's many reasons why you want to put them in certain places, and we'll get into all of that. However, you can put it anywhere. If you've got the weapon that suits that particular warrior, so a sword for a swordsman would be an obvious example, you can make that sword inactive in order to take the special action of the swordsman, which happens to be something to do with scoring. But there's other ways in which the uh, the halberd man will let you move another statue, or if you do a crossbow and you, you use a crossbow when you're building a crossbowman, you're able to score points for it being away from other statues. There's various things you can do. The other thing that the swords are used for is when you want to build specialists. Now, that is an action you can take. The specialists always cost you money. The more specialists of a type that have been built, the more money it costs you to build one. And there's only a maximum of four of each of these specialists available. And again, there's four varieties of them, and they will help you do different things. Like if you attach a horse to your statue, it makes it bigger, so it's present in more areas, but is no more powerful. It's still just one statue. Or there are needing footmen that will score at the end for having your statues around them. So you start seeing why you want to be in certain areas. There are musicians that score each round for being in the same row and column. So the spatial aspect of scoring is driven by various things. And there's also a needing bowman who will add to another statue and make it more powerful. Now, those are the two things you can do with your weapons. However, with that money, as well as making these specialist statues to augment what you're doing with the warriors you're building with clay you can also hire masters half of the middle wheel is taken up by the six special masters within the game and you have six master tokens now the first master that you choose you can choose to hire that master for one money put them in and for the rest of the game every time you choose that master you will get to take that particular action and you've got a stack of six of them the second one costs two third one costs three fourth one costs four etc and they're going to allow you to do things like build statues by just spending money but not getting the points and benefits for doing it. But it adds to your presence for in-game scoring. Or take some wet clay, or take loads of dry clay, or activate all of your weapons at once, or move the inspectors who are going to be looking down rows and columns and scoring at the end of every round. Or even take the inner action twice, which is the only way really you're going to be able to build two statues at once, which can be a real benefit to make sort of a jump move in order to grab hold of some of the points that are available each round. So we skirt around the points a bit. At the end of each of the five rounds, there's three ways in which the players are going to score. There are inspectors. One is for a column and one is for a row. And they start in the bottom left and they're going to inspect the first column and the first row. And then they'll naturally move one along. By taking a master action or a swordsman action, you can manipulate which rows and columns these inspectors are going to inspect, setting yourself up to score more points. Because in a lot of the scoring, by being in, let's say in this example, the row or column that's being inspected, you're going to score a small number of points. But by having dominance and by being the most powerful, you're going to score a higher number of points. And that's a theme that goes throughout the game in that you're making decisions whether I want to be somewhere and just be happy with the lower number, or do I start competing for the higher number of points? But by competing, I might be taking my off some other scoring in another area. And at what point do I say this is a, a, a fallacy, a sunk investment into this that shouldn't go any further? But I've gone so far, I can't stop now. I can't let the other person have the larger number of points. 
So those inspectors set things up very spatially. I mentioned the musicians, they'll give points to statues in the same row or column. The difference to being the inspectors is both the amount of points they score and also that these musicians don't move. So once you're in the same row as a musician, you're going to score points every round. And then there's a tile for each round, which is going to give you end of round scoring. And they come in all sorts of uh, different ways. They score for having the most clay, having the most money, for being present in one of the four sectors of the board and being in rows and columns, of having a majority of a certain warrior. So it might be that person who's got most crossbowmen at the end of round three is going to score lots of points. Just by having any crossbowmen, you're going to score some points. And very much those five end round scoring tiles will definitely shape how the scoring grid forms. Which sectors are going to be scored when? When do we want to jump in? Is there a huge rush on halbermen because they're going to score, but no one really wants to build crossbowmen just yet because they're not as important, or maybe they're scoring later on in the game. And judging those tiles is a big part of the decisions you make beforehand. And you're looking and thinking, right, what sort of warrior do I want to build? Where do I want to build it? Where are these inspectors going to be? Are there musicians around? Is there majority scoring around one of these kneeling footmen? And that's what you're thinking about every time you take the very simple action of handing in two, three or four clay and picking up a statue. That's all you have to do to build a statue. It's where it goes that is absolutely crucial. Now, I've mentioned quite a lot of the endgame scoring, but I will go over it very quickly. Those footmen will score for what's around them. Each warrior, each statue you have is going to score points equal to how many different colours are in a contiguous group of that type of warrior which also drives some of your decision-making. Do I want to go in there? Because I'll score lots of points this warrior because there's lots of other people there. But just by adding my colour to that group, I'm making all of those warriors score another point each. So you get the idea that you're really having to balance lots of different things at the end of the game. And equally, it's also group dominance. So by having the most statues of a type within a group, it's going to score you a few points. It's just five points as opposed to, if I've got one statue in that group, I'll get two points for being part of the group. And weighing this all up as you go is one of the interesting things you're doing while you're playing Terracotta Army. There's things like, I can get loads of dry clay. It's abundant. There's there's a master that lets you grab it off huts because it gets added to these huts every time you build a statue. They can build up with loads of them. It gets really tempting to be like, I can get 15 clay here. But then I have to make sure I have the strategy in order to wet that clay and then be able to use it before it just dries out again and becomes useless to me. But by hiring certain masters, half of them allow me to protect one wet clay each turn. If I hire all three of those and I've got three wet clay for the first round of the next turn, I might get the jump on everyone else and be able to build a statue on the first turn when they're not going to be able to. Just a a simple system of resources, but you're trying to balance it all the time. Now, depending upon how many players there are, it does affect slightly what strategies are going to be most effective. For example, taking dry clay is more effective when you have more workers because you can wet it and then you can do it in the round. When you've only got three workers, but I've got to spend a third of my turn just wetting my clay, well then obviously I'm slightly out of it there. But if I can then make good use of it, for example, with that double action master, then it becomes worth it. But I'm going to have to think of that and think ahead. With fewer players, dominance becomes more important because some of the other ways of scoring becomes less prevalent. So you really are vying with each other much more almost viciously over these points for being dominant, rather than when there's more players, you kind of go, well, I'll just be present because most of us are just present, and I can focus myself in other areas. 
and is a nice change up to the player count as to how the game actually feels. In making the choices of what actions you want to take, the limited wheel movement is very interesting. The fact that you can move the wheels one space in a fixed direction gives you choices. However, it does mean that when it's not your turn, it's much harder to plan exactly what you want to do on your turn because you won't know exactly where the wheel is. With more games, you become much more adept at it. You look at it and you go, you don't just plan one away, you plan one or two away in case someone moves it. And if they do move it and you've got a couple of goes, you, you can reassess. But the wheel doesn't change as much as it feels when you first start playing. And in fact, lots of people have said, I thought this might be a bit mayhem, I can't really. But you can actually process through and say, I, I know what's very important to me to do. With limited numbers of meeples, you feel like you should be always absolutely maximising every time taking action. And if I take this and one of these three actions is useless to me, when you initially play, you feel like, well, I don't know. You have to sometimes. You just can't do everything in this game. You have to accept, I cannot be first in every single scoring tile. I cannot win every inspector. I cannot do everything. I have to prioritise what I'm doing. And all of that come together actually very much balances out the analysis paralysis because each action is quick. And you're not working out how I'm going to get something done. I'm not trying to work out how I get the seven mechanical cogs of this system into place just to spit out one thing at the end. Everything I'm trying to do is very simple. It's up to me what my priority is and what choices I'm making of how I'm going to score the points. It's only two resources to manage. It is all done on a shared board, which is lovely because there's loads of interaction. There's so much interaction in the scoring, obviously, in the actions you take of moving the wheel, of denying people, of setting other people up. It feels like a real hybrid of taking some of the best of modern games in terms of presentation with actual statues that you're putting down and the fact that there's a little box that sits up and you can see the special actions of each warrior along the side, the attractiveness of the whole thing, the, the production values but also the fact that we are playing on a short shared board, having a shared experience. It's easy to teach. I'm managing a very limited amount of resources and I'm making quick, clear actions that are not obfuscated in what the delivery is towards the end goal of scoring points. All of that sort of uncertainty comes from my opponents, not from me not being able to work out the nine steps it takes to score two points. It looks striking, it plays fast, Yes, it can last two hours for four out player game. It might sound like it's not like you're only taking 15 actions. Trust me, you are involved all the time. Every time another player is doing something or putting down a statue or taking a specialist, it's affecting how you're thinking, what you're doing, how I react to it. You can probably tell from my enthusiasm and the length of this review that Terracotta Army, I think, is a fantastic game. I had hoped it would be. I thought it might be. It has come through in all of my plays this would make my top 100 were I to write it out today. I highly recommend it. And for now, with an eye to possibly getting even higher up, I am given Terracotta Army a score of 89 out of 100. Okay, if I promise you that that was the long review, will you stick with me as we go through six more games? The next one up is Hamlet. Wonderful players, 90 minutes from 2022. Designer is David Chikop, who designed Pursuit of Happiness and Petricor. The designer is Mighty Boards, who published Petricor, Excavation Earth, Vengeance, Post-Human, and many more. In Hamlet, 
The players are all going to be competing during the building of the church within a hamlet to turn it into a town. And we're doing that by delivering all goods to the central church. The church says, this is what I want. And you deliver a certain set of goods, you build a part of the church, and when all the bits are built, the game ends. And you score for when you make those deliveries to the church, but you're looking to score all the way along by developing this hamlet, by playing down tiles, by moving your meeples around the place, and by building up a network for yourself. So how does it all work? Well, you're going to be using each of the meeples that you have. You start with one, you can buy more, and you're going to use them in various ways. The hamlet starts with sort of the blueprint of the church and then some resource areas. You can go to a resource area, you can use your meeple, flip it down, fill that area up with resources, and that's how you make some money. Now, those resources are now available for you or indeed anyone else to use on tiles that want those resources. So if I go to the forest and cut some wood, either I or another player, as long as I can get that wood to a tile that needs it, can use the wood that I've produced. It's never mine, it's everyone's. There are other tiles you can build which allow you to make refined resources. Now, anyone can go there and can create a refined version of the resource once you've built the tile. But if it's your tile and you use it and you create a refined resource, which some of the more powerful tiles might want or the market might want for players to deliver to them to score some points, I will get a benefit because I'm using the tile I built and my resources are refined. In order to move these resources around the tiles which come into play, you have to spend money in order to, well, buy meeples for more actions, but also to create a network of donkeys and you can move them as you go. And as long as you have a donkey per tile between where you, the resources start and where you want the resources to be, you're able to say, look, I transport them across this wonderful army of donkeys. Not sure about the theme behind that. Chains of donkeys, like, like a huge chain of for buckets for a fire or something, but we're going to go with it. The donkeys like to be in chains. As well as the fact that donkeys need to be in chains, the tiles also have got different sizes. They've got stones, they've got trees, and they've got roads. And you have to make sure that the roads match up and you've got donkey for where the roads go around each other. Luckily enough, you can build bridges in certain areas in order to link up tiles and make your own little road network so that you can maybe build tiles and then look to build a bridge network later to attach them to you in order to get things backwards and forwards as you wish. Now, if you think that this all sounds like it might be a bit busy with the tiles going down in different areas with stones and forests and paths and donkeys and meeples and resources going backwards and forwards. If I tell you that some of these little resource dobbers are maybe three millimetres across, possibly five or six long and probably five or six tall, and that which side they're on matters because a refined one is just the other side of an unrefined one, and that you've got to put them onto the actual icons on the tiles to cover them over, but there's no spaces for bridges and stuff. You've got to plop them down wherever, quite possibly on top of some of the icons. And then I tell you that the paths, they look nice, but they're not very clear sometimes what where they are and what they're between. And then I tell you that all of the iconography is absolutely tiny, and as soon as you start building the church or putting meeples and donkeys in place, you tend to be blocking someone's view of some of the iconography because it's so small and everything is so centred in. You get that this is really awkward to play. And there's decisions to be made. 
and there's a spatial aspect to everything and maximizing the efficiency of my actions but to work it all out is such a pain it's such an absolute nightmare it's just so small i mean i'm trying to think of other ways of saying it. that's why i'm stuttering over my words and, and struggling other than to explain that the tiles are just too small and there's just too much information on them and they get very very busy and then it becomes even more of a headache and it's a game of eking out small efficiencies because we're making resources available for each other. In effect, I'm doing it selfishly. I, I'm, I'm making these resources available because I want the money for them or I want them. But I might make wood available and there's three of it and I only want one or two. Well, then I'm leaving it behind for you. In order to make a sort of proper strategic decision as to whether that's worth it or not, I need to be able to see what's going on across the board. What you're doing, what resources you have in play, what tiles you've drafted, meaning that you want to add them to the hamlet and what they provide and what they cost. And it's just impossible because I, I need a magnifying glass and a piece of pen and paper to go around everywhere looking at them going, what's that? What's this? Now, I can only voice my frustration about this game and I don't want to go on about it negatively for too long because the game itself has got lots of interesting things going on and the puzzle was interesting and that interaction of me providing and you taking, was it worth it for me to provide that for you to take? Or that now that you've built that, I'm going to nip in ahead of you. All of that felt good. It felt like I want to get to know this. I really want to dig into it and get to know the buildings and realize when someone builds this or someone builds that. Or when someone builds that and it's deliberately at the end of, of five tiles away from where someone else might need it because they've got loads of donkeys and you haven't. And they stitched you up there. That's all great. But it's such a pain to play. The design is just let down by the production and I just couldn't get over it. Uh, so this is absolute frustration. And if they ever bring out a double size, triple size version and I have a massive table and I've got room for the huge box it would take it to go in, then I would love to play Hamlet possibly in that situation or do something to clean up how all the iconography works. But for the moment, I just... That frustration is a barrier that I can't get through. So I'm giving Hamlet 53. One of the buzziest buzz game, maybe the purriest per game around Essen and all the having sold out and what a great excitement. Well, they had very few copies, but that still it was great excitement. Is Cat in the Box, the deluxe edition, two to five players, 30 minutes, 2022, designed by Munayuki Yokuchi, who designed Yokai Septet and Seven Symbols and Seven Nations. And published by Ayatsurare Ningdiokan, who also published uh, Sweet Stack and Age of Assassins. And it's been picked up now by Bezier and Hobby Japan, hence the deluxe edition as opposed to Cat in the Box, the original publication. You may have heard of it. It's a trick taker in which you are dealt a hand of number cards that have no colour to them. They've got white writing on black background. And then a player begins a hand. And every time you play a card... You declare what the colour of that card is. So the number is fixed. If I play a six down, I must say it's one of the four colours in the game. Red, blue, green or yellow. I then you take one of my own dobbers and mark off. Let's say I say it was the blue six. I mark off the blue six on the scoring grid. So the blue six has been played. So none of the other sixes in the game can be the blue six. The next player then takes a card from their hand and plays it. They declare what colour that is. They have to follow suit unless they say, I can't follow suit. Now, let's say Sean had played it as a blue six, and for whatever reason, 
The seven I'm about to play, I decide I don't want it to be blue. Maybe the seven blues already been played, or whatever the reason might be, or maybe I'll choose it. If I put it down and say this is the seven yellow, I then take the blue marker off my board, and I may not play a blue card for the rest of this round, because if I've not followed suit, I've declared I don't have any blue cards in my hand. And I have changed the state of the cards by my statement of the observation. The alleged quantum card system, which is not exactly right, but I guess it's close enough that we're going to allow it. And so therefore you must follow or say you have none. The heat of the hunt, if you cannot play a card, if you're stuck with a number in your hand and all that number has already been played, which I'm not, convinced, I'm not sure it's possible, but more likely... You've said that you haven't got the only colour that's left. So let's say I've got four in my hand and the only four that has yet to be played is the four blue. But I've already said I haven't got blue. It would have to happen for several cards in my hand, by the way, because you never play the last one. I'm in a paradox. The, the cards in my hand can't exist because they've all already been played. Or I've said that they don't exist because I've said I haven't got that colour, which is actually the only way it can happen. I'm in trouble. For each trick that I've taken that round, I lose a point. If you don't have a paradox, and you're not the person to have it, or it doesn't happen, and once players get at all used to the game, it doesn't happen as often as you might imagine, then I score one point per trick that I have. Now, the other thing, and this is one of my least favourite twists to a trick taker, and it might be because I'm still not very sophisticated as a trick taking game player, is that you have to predict how many tricks you're going to win in a hand. One, two, or three. You must say at least one, no matter how bad your cards are. And if you've done that successfully, you then go over to that grid we've been talking about, whereby if I say I play the five green, I mark off the five green as mine, and then I say I've played the five, six yellow, I mark off the six yellow as mine, and so on and so forth. If I've predicted correctly the number of hands that I'm going to win, I will look on that grid and find the biggest area of my markers, and I get those as points as well. So I very much wish to predict my hand correctly at some point during the multiple hands you play to form a full game of cat in the box basically everyone gets to go first once the card play itself to me is interesting enough it doesn't blow my mind because it kind of gets a little bit obvious as to well you don't cancel too many colors early and ideally you only start saying i can't i haven't got that color once you can see the numbers in your hand can't be played really in that colour anyway and you're not stitching yourself up. So people tend to play a bit safe in that. So the paradox thing is almost like a beginner's trip up. Now it does happen sometimes if you're trying to overreach and stuff, but not really. The point scoring to me, firstly, I wasn't going to like it because it's very much linked to predicting how many hands you can win and I'm awful at it. Anything where I have to predict what other people can do is not a good sign for me. So that's one thing. The second thing is though, if you get a big group off your own markers together, you can score loads and loads of points. But that is almost, not wholly, now, but all, largely dictated by what numbers you draw. Now, the numbers are slightly offset on the grid, so all the eights aren't next to each other. It will go eight, seven, six, five. In order to get that across multiple colours, yeah, you can, you can be clever and, and obviously judge that, but it is written right in front of you. The problem is it's driven a lot a lot, a lot, by what cards I draw. Whether that happens to everyone evenly over the course of three, four, or five hands, and it's probably not going to. That doesn't make it a bad game. It's just that these sort of innovations linked to, to what I don't love as a scoring system is less interesting to me 
than some of the much simpler twists that I've tried in Trick Taking. And I'm by no means an experienced Trick Taker. The crew is like the game I've played most to get good at Trick Taking. But I've so far to this stage much prefer the simpler twists. American Bookstore, I much prefer that game to this game. Does it make it a bad game? I've given it a 62. I'm just not at all caught up in the hype of Cat in the Box. I will say, because I just came back from LobsterCon, fabulous time. Thank you to Alec and Alex and Chris and Adam and Mike for all your work, for organising that. It was fantastic. Um, I will say that of the people that played Cat in the Box, and loads did over the weekend, the vast majority, I would say, went with me and went, yeah, it's all right. I was cool. I'm happy to play it. And about 15% went, that is fabulous. I must own it. So it's definitely got something there for some people. Not quite for me. A 62, cat in the box, happy to play it. Not mind blown. Next up is Deities. Two to four players, 45 minutes, 2022. Designers Gary Kim, who designed Corio, Rising 5, and Shozon. And the publisher is Mandu, who do Korean localization for lots of games. Also done like Paper Savari, Queens, Wangdo, lots of games. In Deities, the game is played across a grid. It's competitive. It's almost entirely themeless. You're going to play a tile. You have one tile in your hand. It's two-sided. There'll be two different resources on it. Off the three, off rice, wood, and stone. You're going to play it at the end of a line. Now, the grid off the whole board is eight by eight. It starts with four tiles in the middle. So to begin with, I would have to put my tile down with a face up that is the same as the opposite end of a line, but I can choose in any of the eight directions where this line is. So you can count diagonals. And let's say I put it down. So I'd have a rice and then the, there was a tile in the middle and a rice at the other end. I would now claim two rice resources, flip any tiles in the middle and claim the resources that are on them. And the lines you form over the course of the seven, eight or nine rounds of how many players you have are going to become longer and you're going to take more resources as you go. But always within the rice, the stone or the wood, unless people have built structures in the way. Structures, you say, Ronan. There are three different types of structures you can use these resources to build. They are walls, they are temples and they are towers and they pile up on top of each other. So if I build a set of walls, that area now belongs to me. If anyone builds a line and goes through it, they will get the resource that's shown, but it doesn't flip. And I will get a point. Someone could put a temple on top of my walls and now I will score two points for them doing it. Every time that line's activated, they will score points and the person who activates the line will get a gold. A gold counts as a wild resource for any of the other three for when you're building. And you can always hand in two of any the same resource to become a gold in order to switch around and turn that gold into a stone, for example, if you wanted to do that. With the walls, once you build one, you've got your own board that holds these sort of plastic buildings for you. Once one goes out, there's a gap in the board and then you get a helper tile that fills it in. You draft it from a market and the helper tiles are going to either give you an extra resource when you play it on a certain type of terrain on the board because the grid shows terrains and you know, they're blocked out in certain areas. Or it's going to give you the ability to trade in a certain resource one for one for gold once around. Or it's going to give you the ability to trade in a certain resource for victory points. Once you have a temple, again, it leaves a gap on your board. And you're going to draft from a set four a scoring condition for yourself only. And it may be for having built certain buildings. But having built loads of the same building will always score you points. It may also be for... Having area majority on a type of terrain, so having most buildings that control a type of terrain, or 
the board has got this central thing and then it's got sort of four squares going out if you can imagine and you can get sort of score of being the person who's most on the inner square or most on the outer square or wherever it might be encouraging you to build or take over temples either on those terrains or within certain geometrical areas of the board the towers will allow you to claim ultimate control of a, of a space and also they will just straight up score you points for having built the towers but they will be more expensive than the temples and the walls there's other ways of scoring points and that everyone gets a secret endgame scoring tile in which they want to be in control of a certain terrain or again one of the geometric shapes and also there are sanctums is what they're called they're basically if once someone places a tile in one of the four corners of the board that quarter of the board is going to score for area control and they're all going to score at the end of their school but if they've been triggered in the game they're worth twice the points they are then at the end of the game they're only worth a handful of points Deities is clear, clean, and simple in its play and in its designs. The buildings really match up nicely. They're built on top of each other. It's always very easy to tell who's in control of an area. And the scoring at the end is no problem because you can see exactly clearly what everything is. The terrains are well-defined. It's, it's a simple enough board. Everything makes sense. There are also different paths to victory. You can put out walls. And all your walls can be built on during the course of the game. It's happened to me not very long ago. And you can still win because you score points when people build on top of you. And you can, when you're getting walls, you can claim those tiles that allow you to hand in resources for points. So you will then can drive it forward. And the more walls that you build, the more chance you've got of getting those out the market. Just because you're giving yourself more chances. If I've built five walls, I've got five chances to get really good tiles as opposed to I've built one or two and move on to temples and towers, then I need to maximise my temple and tower scoring. But it's nice the fact that you don't just have to chase in one direction and just go and build as many towers as possible, and that's what's going to win me the game. The downside to deities is the main mechanism and the choices that I thought you'd have to make in forming the lines going, well, I need three stone this turn, so therefore I, might, yeah, I want to do it here or here. It just doesn't matter often enough. Once the buildings start coming out, all you really want to do is grab coins. All right, you're giving a point away to someone, but you really want to grab coins, trust me, because they're so flexible. And equally then, the lines become so long that you're like, well, as long as I get two of something, it, it counts as the stone I need, so it's fine. And the choices of how the lines are built really became not that important, as opposed to people were chasing where to build their buildings and what area scoring they want to grab. And that's happened throughout. And... That took a bit of the subtlety of the gameplay away from me. Abundance becomes a problem. You're getting so many resources that you're always able to build, and sometimes you're able to build a couple of extra times on your turn, and really you're just churning everything out, and it takes away from some of the subtlety of going after a particular strategy and, and means and ways of building. I made a mistake in one of the rules times, times I taught it, and I said you can only build one building on a turn. And I almost preferred that game of it because people were forced to choose what they were doing in order to score as opposed to just going, I'll build everything and score everything. We'll all just get all the points in the world. There's no inner struggle in deities because there's not much outer struggle. Cool games, a very chill game. Even when people attack you, you're still getting something back for it and you can make it work out so you're not that worried, which almost lends itself to, do I care enough? So it does a lot of things well. I'll happily play it. It hasn't quite got that hook for me to want to keep it on. And I've ended up giving it exactly the same score. 
as Cat in the Box. So I think they're both very playable, enjoyable games, but I have no need to own them. So it's got a 62 as dead. Okay, fifth game this time is the Night Parade of 100 Yokai. I'm going to finish you with three quick reviews here, by the way. So not long left. One to four players, 45 minutes. Officially a 2021 game. I'm not sure who got it in 2021. Designed by Louis Brewer. Keep the heroes out and dwarfs with a seven for the F or Brewer Games, obviously Louis Brewer, who have also done Volknut, also designed by Louis Brewer. It's all Brewer around here. Okay, how does this work? There are a set of tiles laid out, which are the islands, on which each of the players representing a different species of yokai, maybe your foxes, your cats, your bears, your whatever, and frogs. And you are attempting to get a set number of your meeples onto an island, at which point they convert themselves into a shrine. And the first player to have built all their shrines is going to be the winner of the game. The mechanism by which you do this is each player has got three lines of cards, which are linked to the three different terrains. And on a turn, they'll activate one line of cards. When you activate a line of cards, it will allow you to place meeples onto the islands of that color one per island, so the maximum you can get out is four of your meeples at once. They will also allow you to move around the place, to punch each other and kick them out, and also by earning spirit and scrolls. A spirit is the currency and scrolls. You just need scrolls, like one each to buy cards, to buy cards, which are values two, four, and six. And the more expensive the card, it still has the same icons on, but it'll have multiple icons. You can punch twice or move and gives you some spirit or whatever it might be. They are more useful. The next turn, you cannot activate the same line. You must go to another line. In a variant from expansions, you must go through all three lines of cards before you come back to them because people tend to obviously concentrate on one or two and absolutely rinse them or even one. They have a good turn, bad turn, good turn, bad turn. This all sounds very good. The capacity for shrines on each of the islands is too high. There's not enough tension and fighting and needing to, I need to get this on this island. There's nowhere else I can put it. There's always somewhere else I can put my shrine. I'm not overly fussed when you build one and you max it out. I'll just move these to somewhere else. At the beginning, one of the uh, factions makes more spirit than all the others, which means they can buy better cards. So they're doing exactly what you're doing but also getting more spirit, which will allow them to buy even better cards. And now they're doing things better than you're doing. And they can do what your speciality is better than you. And they're still getting more spirit than anyone. And they will run away and it snowballs. And lots of people have come across this issue. So therefore, you go down to three players and you say, well, let's not use that faction. When you go down to three players, the issue with the overcapacity of shrines and the no need to go anywhere near each other, well, that's not true. You do need to go near each other. But the issue with the shrines, there's too many spaces for them, so you're not desperate, desperate to get them anywhere. You know, every island's available all the time. It's not like you're going to certain islands. And also, once people set them up on an island, they have three or four of the five required, and you're not in there. You're like, there's no way I can catch you up. So I'm not going to fight with you over that island. It's pointless. I'm just going to go to this one over here and start making them here. And you tend to actually be avoiding each other more than interacting on the board, especially if someone has a couple of punch symbols. Wherever they are, you're just like, I'm not going to go there. And there's lots of room, so it's it's not really a fuss. And the whole thing is kind of not really a fuss. And it feels like there's some nice ideas here, but it feels underdeveloped. 
and they haven't quite been brought to fruition and that the whole spirit imbalance thing is a horrible idea. There there are a few expansions out for it, whether they balance it up. Well, I know they bring other factions, you can kick the imbalance faction out, but that's okay. I don't need to spend more money on Night Parade of 100 Jokai because at the end of the day, there was nothing very interesting and I gave it a 38 of 100. Okay, good. Fun facts is the Repros Productions fun party game for this year. Four to eight players, 30 minutes, 2022. Casper uh, Lap, you design Magic Maze, God Loves Dinosaurs, and the Potion. And Repos have done all the Seven Wonders games, which is what they became famous for. But they've also, in recent times, done this switch across to the same size box, party games like Just One and So Clover. And this is 2022's, and it's called Fun Facts. And this is how you play. You each have a, a chevron, which you write your name on on one side. And someone pulls a card and asks a question which has a numerical answer. So, for example, between 0 and 100, how clumsy are you? Between uh, 0 and 100, how much do you like comic books? In days, what is the longest holiday you've ever been on? Trip you've ever been on? How many keys do you have on your keychain? Don't know, whatever it is. And then everyone writes a number and puts it face down so that no one can see the number, everyone sees the name. And the person who read the card out puts their chevron down. The next player decides whether they're above or below that chevron. And then the other players try and slot themselves in, in the middle, second from the bottom, fourth from the top, around the right, next to your auntie, wherever it might be. And then the first player gets to move their own. And then we flip them all over and we're trying to get them as close as possible from lowest to highest without talking about the thing until afterwards. And you flip them over and you laugh and you go, what? You only like people four out of 100. Why are you here? That sort of thing. Hi, Paul. Is fun facts a game? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I hate that conversation. But the thing is, it is a conversation. That's what this whole activity, fun time is. It's about sitting around and talking about things you would never talk about with your friends, which automatically brings out topics and conversations and information and insights that you wouldn't really get. And that's what Fun Facts gives you. It is a conversation starter. It is a shared time. It's sitting around a table laughing and chatting. It is that aspect of gaming which we enjoy to some degree or other, depending upon what we game for. I think I've said it enough times to say that I really game a large bit for the social aspect of it and connecting with people and just having a shared time around the table. And I'm never really that fussed by winning, if I'm honest. This is such a high So I like it. I think it's a very difficult game to pull off very well because getting actual interesting questions is so group dependent. It's so dependent on people's perspectives, upon their experiences, upon what, what's okay for people to share and not okay to share and therefore I think getting that deck of cards right must be almost impossible because it's going to be group dependent. I think they've done very well. I don't care what the score is. I care that we're having a good time and having a laugh. It's a couple of rounds of it, and I, I definitely think I enjoy it as much as the next person. It's not the magic of So Clover, but it's very good, and I do recommend Fun Facts. So I've given it an 81. It's just a good social time in a box. From the high... We're going to finish on an oink game, which, unless it's called a fake artist or insider, means a low, I'm afraid. And this one is Town 66, one to four players, 15 minutes, 2022. 
I'm not going to say the designers because I'm only going to upset them. It's all games. It's, um, wow, Town 66. A tile starts in the top left of an imaginary 6x6 grid and it has a colour and a shape. There are 36 tiles in the game, so that perfect game you could fill the entire grid. Each player is given four tiles out of a bag. And you can see the colour on the backs of everyone else's tiles. And then you play one of your tiles and it must go into a spot in which there is not the same shape or the same colour in either the same row or the same column. So if I have a red triangle, there can either be a red nor a triangle in the row or column in which I'm playing. I then get to draw another tile. Then I can either move on or I can discard one of my tiles permanently and reduce the size of my hand. Why would I want to do that? Because the person who last is able to play with fewest tiles left wins. So if we all got down to zero tiles, whoever got down to zero tiles last wins. If two people get down to two tiles and then they say I'm done and they stop on two, which whoever done it last is still eligible to win because if you ever get in a situation where you haven't folded in your turn, start of your turn, then you're out. So if you're stuck with tiles and you're still in play, you can't win. And you go, oh, these, these don't fit anywhere. There's nowhere that I can't put them in. You've lost the game. And when everyone has either folded or lost, the game's over and whoever did least tiles wins. If I got Town 66 in a Christmas cracker, I would not in any way be surprised and it would not exceed my expectations for a Christmas cracker game. I don't... What? I don't... What is this? To... <laughs> Okay, just just the crowning glory is that all oink box comes in those all oink games come in that those lovely boxes that look very attractive. They're bright, they're colourful, they're a certain size and shape. People love having them. They're a nice thing to have on your shelf. I fully understand that. The tile holder to hold your four tiles is too short to hold your four tiles because it has to fit in the box. The point at which your production philosophy is affecting the actual playability of the game, perhaps you've gone too far. Perhaps one that should never have been made. Town 66, 28 out of 100. I don't particularly ever want to see it again. Okay. There are a couple of cracking games in there. There are some less than cracking games. Terracotta Army and Fun Facts. Absolutely wholeheartedly get behind them for completely different reasons. Terracotta Army is a cool strategic workout. Fun Facts is just a great time with people. I will have more reviews for you coming soon. Thank you very much for joining me this time around on the Game Pit Podcast. Head to dicetower.com for lots of gaming goodness. If you wish to get in contact with us, it's the Game Pit Podcast at gmail.com or head to our guild on Board Game Geek. Cheers. Music by EA. Boy.